our week at TVR Christian Camp. And hopefully you recognize some familiar faces. Uh, we were definitely pleased to be ministered to uh, by Michael Talley. Uh, and then Justin Redberg was our speaker, who you heard a little glimpse of just there. If you get a chance to, uh, please ask some of our youth uh, what it was like uh, to be at TVR this week. We got to spend a lot of time uh, one-on-one with counselors because there were just a few of us there. It was just the Grace group, really, um, up there at TVR. And so it was a very intimate time, very cool. But this morning, I'm definitely grateful to be back with my family. And yes, I do mean my Grace family, but also my family who has gathered uh, for my grandparents' anniversary. Um, So I'm a little uh, intimidated, but also contented uh, to be teaching the Word to you guys. So we've taken just a few weeks so far to look at Uh, the biggest book of the Bible. (laughs) And Brad has commissioned me to give an overview of the largest book of the Bible in just a few minutes this morning. Uh, And so during this time, we've looked at psalms that express pain. We've looked at psalms that express praise. We've looked at psalms that express peace and all the combinations there. And so as I give this overview, we need to look at the big picture. So let's take a few steps back and look at some of the key features of the landscape of the Psalms. So let's pretend that we're zoomed in really close to a leaf. We're going to pull back. We're going to pull back and we see the whole tree. Keep pulling back until you see the whole forest. Keep pulling back until you see the whole continent and then the whole globe. And that's the kind of perspective we're going to need to really look at the Psalms. So from this perspective, let's remember that everything we're going to talk about in the next few minutes is so important to provide the context interpreting what we read. When you're zoomed in on just, a, just one leaf, the context of just that leaf is not necessarily enough to understand all that has gone into making that leaf what it is. You have to pull back. You have to look at the whole tree, the whole forest, to really get the context. So that's what we're doing. And of course, the most appropriate place to start would be at the beginning. So let's look at Psalm 1. Uh, psalm 1 is more than just the first psalm in the book. It was put there on purpose. This psalm is how we're supposed to look at the rest of the Psalter. It's the lens through which we see the psalms. Pastor Brad taught from this psalm back when we started. Uh, So I'm going to read it uh, together with us so we can be reminded of this introduction, of this lens for the psalms. So Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Once we read this psalm together, and then we start to read the rest of the psalms, there's a tension that starts to develop. Okay, think about, for instance, Psalm 10 from just two weeks ago. Or think about Psalm 13 from the week before that. In these psalms, there is pain and loss and anger, but praise and thanksgiving and confusion and more. And this all follows after this psalm, Psalm 1. 
So we start the Psalms off with the way of the wicked will perish. And anyone who trusts in the law of the Lord, they will prosper. But wait a minute. (laughs) When the psalmist says, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? That's from Psalm 6, verse 3. The psalmist asked, how long in Psalm 6, 13, 35, 79, 80, 89? That's a lot of confusion. So the other day, my wife was reading a book and I grabbed the book from her and skipped to the last chapter. Does anybody else do that? I mean, I wanted to find out if the book was indeed worth reading and so I skipped ahead to see what was going to happen. Um, and so we're going to do that now. We're going to skip ahead. Uh, you know, the best book to skip to the end to read would be the Bible, but especially looking at in the Psalms, we're going to skip to the end. Skip to Psalm 150. I'm going to do a pop quiz here. How many of you have your Bibles with you? Raise your hand. How many of you rely on the screen to be your Bible when you come? Okay. I think it is a much more pleasing sound to the ear to hear those pages turning. And there's something about, you know, touching the scriptures and looking through them yourself. So I'm glad that we have the screen because I use it as well. But let us be challenged to, to bring our texts. Um, as we look at Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. I would like to see that on this stage sometime. Praise Him with the strings and flute. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Psalm 150, we just read, is remarkable because it contains no reason or motivation. It's just praise. It's unfettered, unrestrained, unqualified. The only hint of qualification we have is uh, his acts of power, his greatness. That's never really unpacked. So if you were to take this psalm and read it by itself, you'd be like, okay. So, praise Him. But why? Thankfully, like I mentioned, we're not looking at just this one leaf of this psalm. We've pulled back to look at the tree and in the forest and the whole context. And so, using Psalm 1 and Psalm 50, who were, they're both placed where they are on purpose, we see that it's really... Uh, we can know why God is to be praised because we have the rest of the psalms to read in between. Psalm 150 points us to the fact that the Psalms is a process. We're going to think about process in just a few moments. But here are some more features of this landscape of the Psalms that we should keep in mind as we read them. Um, And hopefully we'll continue to read them through the rest of the year, not just read them during the summer as Brad has taught from them, but continue to read them. One of the things to keep in mind is that Psalms are poetic literature. Now, some of these things may seem pretty self-evident, but bear with me. Uh, The Psalms are poetic. That means that they're distinct from some of the other kinds of literature that we find in the Scriptures. For one thing, they contain parallelism. It's a rhyming of thoughts rather than sounds that's found in Hebrew poetry. So look back at the end of Psalm 150, if you have your Bible with you, uh, and look at how it says, 
Praise Him with crashing cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. No, the psalmist did not stutter. Rather than rhyming sounds, like we sang this morning, at the cross I bow my knee where your blood was shed for me. Hebrew poetry rhymes thoughts. It's a way of emphasizing what was just said. So I guess uh, we should be asking Jacob to bang the cymbals a little bit louder uh, every morning that he is able to play. Another trademark of Hebrew poetry is that sometimes they contain acrostics. It's not the first time you've heard this word because Pastor Brad taught from uh, an acrostic last week. Psalm 145. Psalm 119 is also an acrostic. And you can look at how it's broken down uh, in your Bibles that each section is set off by a character of Hebrew Scripture. It's like this is the A section, the B section, the C section, as it were. And every verse starts with that particular letter. So that is an image of an acrostic. And so these are unique things to Hebrew poetry. They're unique to the Psalms. And so we must remember that we're reading poetry so we can recognize and understand the poetic language and that we can glorify God for putting such a beautiful, beautiful thing in his word to us. The Psalms covers the entire history uh, of Israel up to the return from exile. That's something to keep in mind. This book started to be really found in its final complete form, the form that we have, um, after the Israelites returned from exile uh, to the land from which they've been taken. So knowing, knowing that, it makes a lot more sense when we read something like, By the rivers of Babylon we wept. David did not write that one, and it's important to remember that. In fact, there's many authors to these psalms. Uh, God used Moses, David, Asaph, the sons of Korah. And we should consider this as we read. The Psalter covers a, a whole period of history, many different authors. There are generations of God's people that all contributed to the psalms. Another key feature of the landscape of the psalms is that the psalms, or Psalter, another term for the book, uh, it's part of the Old Testament, but it's also part of the whole Bible that we have. Now that may seem like a no-brainer. It may seem completely self-evident to you, but if you will, remember that we pulled back from the leaf to see the tree, to see the forest, to see the whole continent. So though one psalm may be a leaf that provides us comfort, that leaf is part of a tree, which is part of a forest. The psalms are connected to events all throughout the Old Testament. The Psalms are quoted all throughout the New Testament. So the best way to read the Psalms uh, is to read it as you read through the whole book. A challenge that many of us need to hear. Another important aspect of the landscape of the Psalms is that the Psalms is a book of prayers. Think about that for a second. In the middle of the Bible, this story that leads us toward Jesus, toward the cross, there's a book completely composed of prayers. 150 prayers. Prayers that come from anointing. King David was anointed. The priests that helped write were anointed. These are powerful prayers. Let's continue to talk about this. The Psalms of Prayers. The community of of believers. Us and those of us who came before us All of the believers, the cloud of witnesses, they've used and reused and re-reused these same words to pray to God. And the reason they do that is because they are adequate. If you've ever tried to express something that's deeply 
in your heart and you've stumbled over words, you go to the Psalms and you find words that work. There's really no better words to use uh, to praise God. Something that I came across was the thought that God's speech and Jesus Christ meets us in the Scriptures. That's where we find God's speech. So what better place to be when praying than in the book of the Bible where man's words, these psalmists who have expressed their thoughts and their hearts, man's words and God's word are met together. Something that uh, that Bonhoeffer uh, encouraged us to remember is that all prayers of the Bible are prayers that we pray together with Jesus Christ, in which he accompanies us and through which he brings us into God's presence. Only in and with Jesus can we truly pray. So as we look at the Psalms, we can't think, uh, you know, what does this Psalm mean to me? But rather we need to be thinking, what does this have to do with Jesus? So uh, let's look at these prayers. How are they unique? How, how is this unique as prayer? How does it point to the gospel? Uh, these prayers that are in the Psalms, they're directed to a known, a specific, identifiable you, Yahweh God, the creator who's revealed himself to his creation. The prayers of the Psalms, they're different from meditation or religious speculation that you might find in like spiritual pursuits. These prayers that we have in the scripture, they have their focus on a God who is known. So even in Psalms that have a lot of I focus in them, they move toward this you, this one that we know. And this is a way of acknowledging through the prayer that the source, the real source, the real ground of life is not in us, but is in that you, is in God. These prayers that we have, um, they're, they're poetic, and so there's kind of a structure there. But if you look through the Psalms, they're very rarely safe. Uh, they're very unconventional. Uh, they're, they're never routine. We make things routine. We make things safe and traditional. When you look in the scripture and look at the Psalms, they're radical in the way they speak to God. But when you think about it, this is a book that is in God's word. If we pray from it, we can be confident in using these Psalms to speak back to him. With these radical prayers, we see that uh, the praise Psalms especially, they're prayers that are endlessly surprised about the character of God. And they're endlessly grateful for life in a world that God makes possible. If we could praise that way every time we pray. The Psalms have a kind of a structure to them that once I, once I talk about this, you're going to be able to recognize it in all sorts of places in the Bible, in life, in story. So, as you may have noticed uh, from this past week especially, we are in the season of summer. It was 102 at some point last week. I'm glad that we were in the mountains where it was only in the 80s. We also have the seasons of fall, winter, and spring, thankfully, uh, to kind of temper these things. The planet keeps spinning. So there are seasons of life as well. I'm sure you've heard this or said this before. Um, there are seasons of life reflected in the structure that are, that's in the Psalms. So there are three kinds of seasons that I want to point out 
to get us, to help us get an overview of the Psalms, to get our minds around 150 different prayers. There are three seasons I want to point out. The first season is a season of orientation. Some Psalms are the part of a season of orientation where God's goodness is clear. There is joy, there is delight, there is reliability. The world is right. And those who fear God are blessed. And those who do not fear God are punished. Those are Psalms of orientation. Everything is as it should be. There are also psalms that express anguished seasons of hurt and suffering, death. They evoke rage, resentment, self-pity, even hatred. This is all in the psalms. And this is part of life. You know what? It's okay to admit that. Especially in our family, in the body of Christ. Those are psalms of disorientation. There are also psalms in the season of new orientation. And so the season of new, new orientation is uh, characterized by just honest surprise at new works that God does. Uh, joy that breaks through the despair that we might be dealing with. So, to very clearly illustrate, I think, think of, uh, think of Callie and the Moody family. I didn't ask Chad for permission, and so I may be hearing about this later, but think about this with me. They were in a place of orientation where God's goodness had brought them two beautiful girls. They were trusting God, part of the family of God here at Grace. Orientation. Then, Callie is diagnosed. Crazy disorientation. All of those emotions I mentioned experienced in one moment and then carried out intensely for two years. That's disorientation. But then, Callie is in remission. A miracle, a new orientation, because joy has broken through that despair and God has given a new gift. So you can probably begin to recognize some of these seasons in your life. And this is what we see all throughout the Psalms. Movement from season to season. Either one of these three seasons is being experienced or the movement between them. Uh, Movement from orientation to disorientation is like realizing that things aren't all that they were. Circumstances are changing. Life experiences are occurring. Starting to get weird. Also, there's movement between disorientation to the new orientation. When God shows something to us, when we thought that everything was lost and we're raised out of the pit of chaos there's still a little bit of chaos clinging to our ankles. Usually, we are only aware of what season we're in when it's in disorientation. That's why uh, we titled this psalm series through the summer, Pain, Praise, and Peace. Most of us realize uh, that we need God's presence when we're experiencing pain. And if we move toward praising Him, we will find peace in His will. That's why we set that movement the way that we did. But we also see this kind of three-part movement all throughout the Bible in other places. So think about it for a second. I want you to... to, I almost wanted to have you raise your hands and kind of shout them out, but just a few too many of us to do that well. And so think for a moment. Think about three-part movement in the Scripture. How about... Creation, fall, 
redemption. Or Exodus, wilderness, promised land. How about Jesus' ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection? If you'll indulge me for just a few moments, I'm going to show you this movement, these seasons. Uh, they're deeply a part of how we tell stories, too. Um, this movement uh, that's in the Psalms is also present in the hero's journey. Uh, departure from home, trials, and triumphant in return. Think about movie trilogies or the structure of a good story. Uh, there's a beginning, something crazy happens to change everything, and then there's a resolution of a sort. I did this before I knew that my cousin Bethany was going to be here, but uh, she and I are both Star Wars fans. And so in my, uh, in my favorite movies, in the Star Wars trilogy, the original one, not the new ones, just forget those, in the original trilogy, um, we see Luke... As a simple farm boy living in the middle of nowhere, kind of like Andrew, and he goes on a crazy journey away from the farm where he meets an old man, hairy beast, a green midget. He discovers his father, and then after the darkest point in the story, he returns with all of the knowledge that he has gained, and he rescues the galaxy. You see see the movement here. Um, The reason that this story resonates with us and that it made so much stinking money when it came out is because... This is how life is, just not on a galactic scale. I mean, think about another trilogy. Think about the Fellowship of the Ring trilogy by Tolkien. Um, Aragorn, his story is a hero's journey. So is Frodo's. They're totally different and unique stories, but both journeys, there's movement there. There are seasons in there. And the reason that we connect with these characters because we have these seasons in our life. So jumping back to the Psalms, it's often in this movement between seasons of life, between orientation, disorientation, new orientation. It's during this movement that we're reminded of an unchanging truth, that God's presence is transformative. And when we suffer, when we struggle, when we stumble, when we cry out to God in anger, we are desperate to be reminded of this truth. That God just needs to be present. So thank God for the seasons when we know and feel that he is. Movement in the Psalms is accomplished by way of honesty about suffering and gratitude about hope. When we start hiding our pain from other people, we get into a stagnant routine of day in, day out hurt. We're not moving We're drowning. So in order to keep moving through life in ways that will glorify God, we must be honest about our suffering. As we've seen modeled for us in the Psalms, we must be grateful for this hope that we have and be ready to give an answer for that hope. And the Psalms, they point to greatness of God's faithfulness, of his covenant loyalty to his people. How much greater is his faithfulness uh, to us and his loyalty to us who are covered by the blood of Jesus and covenanted with God through his son? Faith, uh, an interesting definition I ran across, faith is, a, is always obedience moving toward praise, not praise toward obedience. 
So think about that in terms of movement in our lives. Our faith is made evident to people when we are obeying God's word and moving then towards praise and gratefulness. If we're only praising on Sunday mornings and before meals, we're not moving toward obedience. Instead, we're, we can't call that faith. That, that movement is more like our own determination and our, our own sad efforts. Instead, praise must, must come out of our obedience. And that's what we find modeled in the Psalms. The psalmist seeks to obey and meditate on the law of the Lord and keep the law of the Lord. And out of that determination to keep the law of the Lord and his obedience there, then he praises. And that's how it's modeled for us. So I'm so grateful that we have a Savior who leads us in our movement, leads us through these seasons. And that's what I want to do to conclude this, this look at an overview of the Psalms. Uh, let's look at Psalm 23. Stand and read it with me, if you would. Some of you may not even need to, to open your eyes to read this psalm together. So let's read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Almost, almost every commentator that I looked at said that it's pretty pretentious to comment on this particular psalm, so we'll just skip to the next one. And, uh, and I get what they mean, because it's really tough to comment on a psalm that is so clearly stated and so deeply meaningful to anybody who reads it. But I want, I want to look at some of these things with you, and then with a certain perspective, I want to, I want to add a twist on the end uh, to help us see it in a fresh light. So... In this psalm, in Psalm 23, life is lived fully in the presence of Yahweh. It is God's companionship that transforms every situation. God's presence doesn't mean that there are no valleys of death and no enemies, no pain, but these things do not conquer. For we are led out of those valleys into the place where God dwells. But even in that place where he is, it is not the place so much as the relationship that defines and transforms. So it's not your presence here this morning that brings you any closer to God. It is your relationship with this God through Jesus Christ that transforms you and makes your presence here truly meaningful. Psalm 23 does not presuppose that life is all rosy, does it? Look at the valley of the shadow of death, the enemies present at the table. It's because of these truths that life is difficult, as complicated by evil, that we need the shepherd to lead us. C.S. Lewis noticed something interesting about this psalm, uh, something I'd never really thought about before. So this is an aside. I hope it doesn't really dis- disrupt where we're going. But Lewis noticed that the phrase, uh, prepare a table in the presence of my enemies 
is pretty much a spiteful jab. The psalmist is basically saying, God is going to give me a feast and all my enemies have to watch me eat it. So take that, evildoers. Let's jump back to the first verse and take account of the fact that shepherd, this is a, this is a no-brainer here, but just to clarify, shepherd is a metaphor. And indeed, this whole psalm makes use of metaphor. Uh, metaphor is a way of saying something, but meaning something much bigger and broader and deeper than just the word that's being used. So the Lord is not just a shepherd. But the Lord interacts in our lives in all the ways that a good shepherd would. All the best qualities of this metaphor are made even better when it's applied to the Lord. He created sheep and shepherds in the first place. It's always helpful to remember that the image of shepherd is just, it's a place to start. The Lord who has saved us and leads us is more than we can summarize in an image or a metaphor for he is perfectly good, perfectly holy, and perfectly loving toward us. There is no metaphor to summarize that. Another thought about shepherd. So we can't really say my shepherd without first recognizing that he is our shepherd. Sheep are part of a flock. If you're alone as a sheep, you're in trouble. So we can say that The privilege of being able to say my shepherd is a benefit that comes from belonging to the family of God. Belonging to a congregation of sheep that Jesus is shepherding. So I would encourage you to to really consider being an active part. Consider belonging to this church family or a church family so that you can experience his leading of the flock. Okay, here comes a twist that I promised. Um, I'm a huge fan of comic books. If you've not realized at this point that I'm a nerd, I'm clarifying that completely now. To me, comic books are this generation's mythology. We don't have we don't have the Odyssey or the Iliad. We have a Homer of sorts, but we have the X Men and we have we have Superman. Um, and in these in these metaphors. We can see some things about culture, about society, and politics, and art that we might not see in other forms of literature or story. And that's what mythology is. It's a way to give commentary on the broader culture without being too obnoxious about it. So, in the Superman story, there is a character called Bizarro. And he is indeed uh, bizarre. Uh, Lex Luthor is Superman's archenemy. And he's able to steal just a little bit of Superman's DNA, and he decides... I'm going to create my own Superman because, of course, the world would be better with two. And I'll create one that will obey my wishes and help me become more rich and more powerful. In the cloning process, Bizarro is the result. This clone comes out completely messed up. He speaks in backwards language. He is ugly and malformed. And he wears a backwards S on his shirt. And he can't be controlled. He is a monster. Well, Lex... And this metaphor represents us. Because how often do we take a good thing that God has given us and think, I can make this work better for me if I just focus a little bit more on it and uh, do it myself? And what is the result when we do something like that? Mark Driscoll uh, points out that when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, 
that's a bad thing. When we take a good thing, uh, something that God has done even, something that is uh, pleasing or in any way good, and we make it a God thing, we make it an idol in our focus, we give it the attention that God deserves, we've made it a God thing, and that's a bad thing. And we are created in God's image. Uh, He desires good for us. So when we look at ourselves and decide, I'm the most important thing to me, uh, well, we've taken a good thing and we've made it a God thing, and that's a bad thing. So what would Psalm 23 look like if we take the self, a good thing in God's hands, but make it the God thing? If we take something that has been good and meaningful to us, Psalm 23, and try to make it about us, how bizarre will this result be? Let me illustrate. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated, often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a, it's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I, I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness, futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself because bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. Sometimes, when looking at the opposite end of the spectrum at this anti-psalm, this bizarro psalm, if you will, we see the truth more clearly. And we can recognize anew how precious it is. We have a shepherd. We belong to him. We are loved. I believe that Psalm 23 is a psalm of new orientation because it shows us truth that becomes real to us because of Jesus' presence in our lives. And there's one last movement I want to point out that we find in the Psalms. It's a movement that's uh, of the gospel already way back in the life of Israel. We see a a three-part movement from our life before Christ 
to the gospel radically changing our lives to eternal life. We may be in a life of orientation right now where things seem to be pretty good. But ultimately, there will be disorientation. And the gospel is the only way we will experience new orientation that will bring eternal change. And even if we don't go through a significant life struggle anytime soon, just hearing the gospel should wreck us. It should disorient us. We should be completely in awe of a holy God who has shown us such amazing love. We must recognize our sin and let the weight of our pride disorient us. Because then only, only then can we really be truly honest about our suffering. And only then can we truly be grateful for what God has accomplished in Christ on our behalf for His glory. So let all of us seek to let the Psalms be our language that we use for prayer because there are no better words. And let us be aware of the transformative presence of the shepherd in our lives as we move by his leading from season to season. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would cause us to be endlessly surprised at your goodness and endlessly grateful about it. God, I ask that you would cause us to fall back to the Psalms to express our hearts to you. Help us to live uh, daily in and with your word so that you might lead us. So that the valleys we're in uh, would not be a place where we're stuck. So that the enemies that surround us would not even seem like they're having victory. God, cause us to rest in you so that you might lead us and we might live in the victory that is accomplished for us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.